0: The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is likely one of the most requested topics for Already Gone. I've wanted to cover it, but because this tragedy has such a profound effect on me, I turned to a researcher and writer to put this one together, and I think Gemma Harris did a beautiful job. I asked Cesare, my audio guy, to take another listen to the Gordon Lightfoot classic and find me a few poignant notes to punctuate the story. If you aren't familiar with the song, after you listen to the episode, please check it out. Gordon Lightfoot is an amazing talent and did something truly magical with this sad page of history. Now, in his 80s, Lightfoot is still touring. Perhaps he's doing a show in your town. And listeners, in order to discuss the tragedy, we have to go back, back to the beginning. So come with me for a history of the lake and a stop in the late 1950s when the mining companies and their investors decided to build a ship on a grand scale to transport iron ore through the Great Lakes. The northern shore of Michigan's Upper Peninsula is bordered by Lake Superior. As Lake Superior is roughly the size of the state of South Carolina, the name is fitting. It is the world's largest freshwater lake, not only by surface area, but in water volume, measuring 2,900 cubic miles. At 160 miles wide and 350 miles long, Lake Superior is also the biggest of the Great Lakes, holding more water than all four of her neighboring lakes combined. Superior is also home to Michigan's only national park, Isle Royale, an archipelago of more than 200 islands. Just north of Isle Royale, the U.S.-Canadian border runs northwest to southeast through the lake, geographically splitting it roughly in half. The lake's surface covers 31,700 square miles, and Superior reaches a depth of 1,332 feet. Her shoreline measures 2,726 miles and runs from northern Michigan, along the northern edge of Wisconsin, up to Ontario, and then west to Minnesota. Don't let her appearance on a map fool you. Superior is an inland sea. French explorers who arrived in the area in the 17th century named the lake, and forgive my rusty knowledge of the French language, but they called it Le Lac Superior, which translates to Upper Lake, referring to its position north of Lake Huron. And Lake Superior provides a spectacular setting for all manner of outdoor recreation like fishing, swimming, boating, and wildlife spotting. It also has a long history and an important role in the commercial shipping, fishing, mining, and manufacturing sectors. Traveling the Sioux Locks in Sault Ste. Marie, the lake is connected with ports in the southern Great Lakes. Freight ships transport huge quantities of raw materials across the region. And even though the Great Lakes are inland bodies of water, their sheer size has the ability to affect local weather patterns. Just ask anyone who lives in Buffalo, New York, or my friends and family who live in northern Michigan's Snow Belt. The lakes also influence the region's climate thanks to changes in water temperatures and circulation, as well as lake-effect snow and blizzards. Lake Superior is the coldest of the Great Lakes, but winter temperatures rarely fall below minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. The lake's depth and strong currents prevent the lake from freezing over during winter. And as an aside, I had a friend who lived in the Houghton-Hancock area, which is one of the northernmost communities in the Upper Peninsula when he was a teenager and he told me there was often still ice floating in Lake Superior as late as June or July. So she's this big body of water, so weather events like storms, gill-force winds, and reports of waves over 30 feet high are expected on Lake Superior during the late fall and winter months. During the shipping season from fall till spring, the National Weather Service generally records around four or five significant storms. And this unpredictable weather means that shipping on the lake can be hazardous. The month of November has become infamous for maritime accidents on the lakes, with approximately 40% of such incidents on the Great Lakes having occurred in November. And in the last 300 years, a reported reported, 25,000 maritime employees have lost their lives on the Great Lakes. Across all five lakes, an estimated 6,000 vessels lie at the bottom. And a quick primer for you who struggle to recall the names of all five lakes. In Michigan, we are taught the acronym HOMES for Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, and Superior. In February of 1957, Great Lakes Engineering Works in Michigan signed a contract with Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company of Wisconsin, and they made significant investments in the mining sector. This project was to design and construct the largest ship ever seen on the Great Lakes. And in 1958, it was announced that this ship would be named in honor of the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance's new president and chairman of the board. Edmund Fitzgerald. In June of 1958, the ship was christened, and the Edmund Fitzgerald was the pride of the American side, measuring 729 feet long, 75 feet wide, and weighing approximately 13,600 gross tons when empty. For the next 13 years, the Fitzgerald was officially the largest freighter to sail on the Great Lakes earning her the nickname Queen of the Lakes, among others. She was also the most expensive ship to date, costing $8.4 million to build, and that's in 1950s money. As the big freighters go, she was bigger than most. The 860,950 cubic foot cargo hold was divided into three sections by two non-watertight screen bulkheads. There were 21 cargo hatch openings, which were made weather-tight by steel hatch covers, and each of those covers was secured by clamps. And the Fitzgerald was truly a sight to behold for onlookers. Unlike other freighters, her impressively appointed interior included carpeting, tiled bathrooms, two dining rooms, and passenger staterooms in addition to crew quarters. In September 1958, the Fitzgerald's charter was officially handed over to the Columbia Transportation Division of the Ogle Bay Norton Company in Ohio. On her maiden voyage, 24th September 1958, she broke the record for the largest load carried through the Sioux locks. She also broke her own record several times for the most cargo transported in one year and the fastest voyage for a freighter of her size the sheer scale of the Fitzgerald meant that minor incidents during her time on the Great Lakes were unavoidable. In 1969, she collided with a dock running aground. There were two incidents in 1970. In one, she collided with another ship, and in another, she hit a lock wall, a mishap that occurred again in 1973 and 1974. The Edmund Fitzgerald was twice as long as a football field and 50% wider, and that's just to give you a general perspective on how large she really was. And I did some research here myself, and I want to pause and explain why I am referring to the Edmund Fitzgerald, a decidedly masculine name, and the ship was named for a man, using she and her. The website safety4sea.com has a piece on why ships tend to be feminine. The tradition of using feminine pronouns to refer to a ship goes back to the 1800s. There are a couple of reasons given. One is that women are viewed as protectors, Mother Earth, Mother Nature. The boat, she protects her sailors from the sea. And from a linguistic standpoint, the gender of the Latin word for ship, navus, is feminine. While in 2020 we are looking at the concept of gender differently, for a story set nearly 50 years ago, I have opted to use the terminology of the time. And while the Edmund Fitzgerald was quite busy transporting materials across the lakes, her main cargo was taconite pellets made from processed iron ore. The Fitzgerald shipped primarily between Superior, Wisconsin, and Detroit, Michigan, but she docked occasionally in Toledo, Ohio. She also loaded taconite in Silver Bay, Minnesota, which she would ship to steel mills on the Lower Lakes. The round trip from Wisconsin to Detroit usually took five days, The Fitzgerald made approximately 47 such trips during her busiest periods from fall through spring. And by November of 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald had traveled over a million miles across the Great Lakes. <music> On November 8, 1975, a storm was brewing over the Oklahoma Panhandle, approximately 1,300 miles away from Lake Superior. And by 7 a.m., a low-pressure system was passing over south-central Kansas. The National Weather Service predicted that this storm would continue to travel in a northeasterly direction, passing south of Lake Superior around 7 p.m. on November 10th. And accounts differ about how the storm unfolded. The following sequence of events is an approximation, but the available information is pretty consistent. At 8.30 a.m. on November 9th, loading Fitzgerald's cargo commenced at Burlington Northern Railroad. Dock 1 in Superior, Wisconsin. The Edmund Fitzgerald would be transporting 26,116 tons of taconite pellets south to Zug Island on the Detroit River in Michigan. If you aren't familiar with Zug Island, it is located just south of the city of Detroit, very close to the city itself. While they started loading the ship in the morning, it would take about six hours to fill the cargo holds. And at 1 p.m., As the Edmund Fitzgerald was being loaded, the storm that had formed over the southern plains of the United States the previous day was now located over the northeast corner of Kansas. Predicted to move in a northerly direction, it was now forecast to pass over, instead of going around, Lake Superior. At 2.20 p.m., the Fitzgerald departed Superior en route to Detroit. At the helm was Captain Ernest McSorley. McSorley was appointed captain in 1951, and he took command of the Fitzgerald in 1972. McSorley was born in Canada in September of 1912, and his family relocated to New York when he was a child. Growing up, all he wanted was to be a ship's captain, and he would be in command of nine different vessels before he took over as captain of the Fitzgerald. Highly experienced with a distinguished 44-year career, this was to be Captain McSorley's final voyage before retirement. No, I, I mean it. This isn't just a Hollywood trope. This was supposed to be McSorley's final trip. McSorley's reputation in the Great Lakes Maritime community was such that crew members specifically sought him out to work with. Joining the captain on board the Edmund Fitzgerald was an experienced crew of 28 men. Most of these men hailed from Wisconsin and Ohio. The crew consisted of three licensed deck officers, a chief engineer, four licensed engineering officers, and 20 unlicensed personnel, including porters, oilers, maintenance workers, watchmen, deckhands, and wheelsmen. It was about this time, on the day Fitzgerald left port, that the cargo vessel, the SS Arthur M. Anderson, departed Two Harbors, Minnesota, en route to Gary, Indiana. Traveling about 10 to 20 miles apart, the Anderson and the Fitzgerald would take a northerly course across Lake Superior, traveling between Isle Royale and the Keweenaw Peninsula. From there, they would head toward Whitefish Point in the southeast, a trip that was expected to take two days. At 2:39 p.m., the National Weather Service issued gale warnings for the route being taken by the Fitzgerald. Captain Jesse Burney Cooper of the Anderson saw the Fitzgerald about 15 miles ahead and sent a radio transmission. The Anderson was heavier and slower, so it was agreed she would maintain position behind the Fitzgerald in the early part of the journey as a precaution. And several hours later, Captain Burney Of the Anderson radioed the Fitzgerald alerting her to expect worsening weather. At 7 p.m., the National Weather Service issued gale warnings for all of Lake Superior. Winds were expected from 34 to 37 knots or 40 to 50 miles an hour, and waves expected at 10 feet. At 1039 PM, the forecast for the next day was Easterly winds 32 to 42 knots in the morning and west to southwest 35 to 45 knots in the afternoon, with rain and thunderstorms, and waves increasing to 15 feet. By 1 a.m. on November 10th, driving rain had reduced visibility to 2 miles. The Fitzgerald is situated 20 miles south of Isle Royale when she issued a weather report advising of winds at 52 knots with 10-foot waves. That's 60-mile-an-hour winds and 10-foot waves. At this point, about 1 a.m. on November 10th, the storm that started in the Oklahoma Panhandle is now over central Wisconsin, and it's moving at an average speed of 29 knots. At 2 a.m., the National Weather Service issued a storm warning, with waves predicted at 8 to 15 feet. At 7 a.m., the Fitzgerald was situated about 45 miles north of Copper Harbor in Michigan. In what would be her last weather report, winds were recorded at 35 knots and waves were 10 foot high. This was consistent with a weather forecast issued by the National Weather Service at 10.34 a.m., which predicted winds of 32 to 48 knots and waves of 8 to 16 feet. However, when the Anderson plotted her weather chart that morning, winds of up to 80 knots were expected. And again, if you're like me and the term knots leaves you a little confused, Winds at 80 knots are roughly equivalent to 90 miles an hour. At 1 p.m., the storm traveled over Lake Superior to the west of Mishapakotan Island, toward White River, Ontario. Half an hour later, the Fitzgerald was two and a half to three miles southwest of the island, and she was headed right into the path of the storm. She radioed to the Anderson that she would, quote, continue on, although she was, quote, rolling some the Fitzgerald headed in a southeasterly direction toward Whitefish Point on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. At 2 p.m., both the Fitzgerald and the Anderson diverted from the usual shipping lanes along the southern shore of Lake Superior in order to avoid deteriorating weather. The alternate route took them northeast to the southern side of Isle Royale, eastward and then southeast. This was commonly used by freighters during adverse conditions but it would take the ships past Six-Fathom Shoal, a hazardous area north of Caribou Island. The detour was risky because the waters here were shallow. This meant that sharp rocks under the water could significantly damage the vessels. At 2.45 p.m., with waves at 16 feet, the Fitzgerald, which was the faster of the two freighters, was spotted 15 miles ahead of the Anderson and 9 miles south of Mishapakotan Island. At three fifteen p m, Captain Cooper of the Anderson watched with concern as the Fitzgerald rounded Caribou Island in the eastern part of Lake Superior. She was extremely close to six fathom shoal, which again could potentially damage her hull. And at three twenty p m, conditions were worsening. The Anderson reported wind speeds from the northwest of forty three knots with waves of twelve to eighteen feet. While the Anderson could still see the Fitzgerald on their radar, The snow and relentless spray from the lake meant that she was no longer visible from the deck of the Anderson. It wasn't long before the Anderson received radio contact from the Fitzgerald, which was experiencing trouble. Captain McSorley reported that the vessel not only had sustained some topside damage, but had a fence rail laid down. She'd lost two vents. She now also had a starboard list which meant she was leaning to one side, having taken on water. The Fitzgerald requested the Anderson stay nearby until the Fitzgerald had been steered to safety at Whitefish Point. The Anderson asked if the Fitzgerald pumps were operating, to which Captain McSorley replied that both were working to try and pump out the water that had been taken on board from the pounding waves. By 4.10 p.m., both ships are battling wind gusts of up to 75 miles an hour. Let's pause here for a minute. Picture this. Hurricane force winds on an inland sea with driving snow. The Fitzgerald is proceeding at a reduced speed because of the adverse conditions, and Captain McSorley radioed the Anderson requesting radar assistance for the remainder of the voyage because now the Fitzgerald's radars, both of them, are inoperable. At 4.34 p.m., the Anderson changed course and spotted the Fitzgerald about 15 miles ahead and slightly to the right. It was at this time that the National Weather Service issued a forecast update for Eastern Lake Superior. Winds were expected to be from 38 to 52 knots, with gusts up to 60 knots and waves of 8 to 16 feet. The Fitzgerald radioed the Coast Guard at Grand Marais via the emergency channel to say they were taking on water. The Coast Guard responded, advising the Fitzgerald that the radio beacon at Whitefish Point was not operating. Whitefish Point would not be helping the Fitzgerald or guiding her to safety. Between 4.30 and 5 p.m., the Fitzgerald made a radio call for any vessel in the Whitefish Point area seeking information about the beacon and light at Whitefish Point. The Swedish freighter Avafors responded confirming that the beacon and light were not operating due to loss of power from the severe weather. Waves at a height of 30 feet are now smashing into the Fitzgerald. Remember, the ship is listening to port. She has no working radar, and she's trying to pump out the water she'd taken on. Between 5.30 and 6 p.m., the Avafors advised the Fitzgerald by radio transmission that the light at Whitefish Point was now operating, but Still no radio beacon. Amongst shouts in the background, Captain McSorley was heard yelling out that nobody was allowed on deck. Nobody. He told the Avafors that he still had a bad list and he'd lost both radars, saying it was, quote, one of the worst seas I've ever been in. And it was no wonder. The freighter was rolling perilously as it traveled south, pummeled by unrelenting waves traveling west to east. At approximately 7 p.m. near Caribou Island, the Anderson was struck by two huge waves, 35 feet above the waterline. This drove the bow of the boat down into the sea, causing her to take on water. Captain Cooper watched helplessly as the same two waves bore down on the foundering Fitzgerald. In a radio transmission at seven ten p m the Anderson advised the Fitzgerald of northbound traffic nine miles ahead of her. By this stage, the waves were so high that the Anderson could barely maintain sight of the Fitzgerald on the radar. Captain McSorley radioed the Anderson saying, quote, "We are holding our own." It was the last communication received from the Fitzgerald at seven fifteen p m Conditions suddenly deteriorated even further. The Fitzgerald entered a squall, obscuring it from radar observation, and five minutes later, it disappeared from the Anderson's radar entirely. The Anderson attempted to contact the Fitzgerald, but there was no answer. And as quickly as conditions had worsened, visibility suddenly improved. The Anderson could see lights on the shore and those of another ship, each approximately twenty miles away. By Captain Cooper's calculations, the Fitzgerald should have only been ten miles away but there was no sign of her on the horizon or on radar. Captain Cooper radioed other ships in the area, asking if anyone had seen or heard from the Fitzgerald. At 7.39 p.m., he contacted the Coast Guard to advise of the situation, as he steered the Anderson towards safety at Whitefish Point, arriving around 9 p.m. The Coast Guard radioed the Anderson, requesting that she return to initiate a search for the Fitzgerald, as there were no available search ships. In the radio transmission, the reluctance in Captain Cooper's voice is obvious. Winds are still at 40 to 45 miles an hour, and the waves are huge and menacing. That sea out there is tremendously large. I'll be lucky to make two or three miles an hour going back out that way. Do you realize what the conditions are out there? Well, I'll go back and take a look, but God, I'm afraid I'm going to take a hell of a beating out there. I'll turn around and give her a whirl, but God, I don't know. I'll give it a try. Taking an incredible risk, the Anderson made its way back into the storm through swirling waves and high winds. There was no sign of any survivors at the site where the Fitzgerald was last located. Only two lifeboats and debris floating amidst an oil slick. At 9.03 p.m., the Anderson reported the Fitzgerald missing. The only other vessel available to assist in the search at that stage was the William Clay Ford. It, too, had sought refuge at Whitefish Bay, but it didn't arrive at the scene of the Fitzgerald disappearance until hours later. At 10.53 p.m., an HU-16 aircraft arrived. This had been launched by the Coast Guard in Traverse City, Michigan. Two commission vessels were also dispatched: the Naugatuck and the Woodrush. The latter traveling from 300 miles away in Duluth, Minnesota. Also providing assistance was Canadian Coast Guard aircraft and a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter, which arrived around 1 a.m. November 11th, almost five hours after the last contact was made with Fitzgerald. The air and sea search continued throughout the night, but there was no sign of the Edmund Fitzgerald. She and her crew had vanished. The morning after the tragedy, a memorial service was held at the Mariners' Church in Detroit. In honor of the souls lost aboard the Fitzgerald, the church bell was rung twenty-nine times. And back at Lake Superior, Ontario Provincial Police conducted shoreline searches. A lifeboat, half of another lifeboat, Two inflatable life rafts and 21 life jackets or life jacket pieces were recovered. In the days following the sinking, magnetic anomaly detection equipment was brought in by the U.S. Navy to help locate the wreckage. On November 14th, 17 miles north of the entrance to Whitefish Bay, two large pieces of wreckage were located on the floor of Lake Superior at a depth of 530 feet. It was the Fitzgerald broken in half. From November 14th through the 16th, the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Woodrush swept the site with a side-scan sonar, confirming the discovery. This was followed up by a second sonar survey arranged by the U.S. Navy, and this was conducted from November 22nd through the 25th. The maritime industry and investigating agencies agreed the weather was a significant contributing factor in the tragedy. However, there were competing theories as to the exact cause of the sinking. High-level simulations were performed to help hindcast the storm and fill the gaps regarding weather conditions such as wind direction, speed, and wave conditions. Lake Superior's severe winter weather in the months following the sinking hampered authorities' efforts to assess the wreckage. It wasn't until May 1976 that a comprehensive assessment of the damage to the Fitzgerald could be conducted. An investigative task force consisting of the Coast Guard, the National Transportation Safety Bureau, the U.S. Navy Supervisor of Salvage, the Naval Undersea Center, and an engineering consultancy contracted by the U.S. Navy was formed. An unmanned submersible made 12 dives to the wreck site over eight days. Videotape and almost 1,000 photographs revealed that the stern of the Fitzgerald lay upside down on the floor of the lake. It was located 170 feet from the bow section, which was standing upright. The wreck site was indeed the last position of the Fitzgerald, as reported by the Anderson. The rudder and propeller were undamaged, but taconite pellets and hull plating could be seen scattered across the lake floor. Her hatch covers were damaged and covered in mud, or they were missing, with one found laying next to the stern. An analysis of the wreckage failed to provide any immediate answers as to the cause of the sinking. However, an assessment of the events leading up to the loss of the Fitzgerald indicated that she experienced massive flooding of the cargo hold for disappearing beneath the waves forever. Both of her water pumps were damaged, and the sheer ferocity of the storm had destroyed her lifeboats. Available records indicated that 14 fire and boat drills were conducted on the Fitzgerald between April and October 1975. The ship was last inspected by the Coast Guard eight days before her final voyage. No damage to the hatch covers or difficulties were reported by the crew while loading cargo personnel who were ashore just prior to departure saw the ship's crew replacing the hatch covers after the cargo was loaded. Previous evacuation drills conducted while the Fitzgerald was moored in good weather suggested that it was not possible for her to launch a conventional lifeboat in less than 10 minutes. If she was in a seaway, launch time for a lifeboat increased to as much as 30 minutes. The likelihood that a lifeboat could be launched successfully and boarded at the time the Fitzgerald sank was slim. Remember, hurricane force winds, 8- to 16-foot waves, and driving snow. The formal accident investigation was completed in May of 1978. It was noted that the Fitzgerald was seaworthy prior to her departure. Captain Cooper gave evidence that he felt the initial damage to the fence rail was caused by the ship running into a dangerous area of shallow waters near Caribou Island. The National Transportation and Safety Bureau considered the possibility that flooding resulted from the ruptured hull plating as a result of being grounded. However, this was ruled out. Given the Fitzgerald's most probable route was about three miles from the nearest position where she could have been grounded, and there were no signs of any gouges scrapes fractures or indentations on the bottom plating of the wreckage when captain mcsorley first reported topside damage to the ship around three thirty p m caused by the pounding waves the ballast tanks and tunnel were flooding but this wasn't the only problem the deck was also covered in water which couldn't be pumped out it was determined that due to the volume and force of the water being taken on board One or more of the hatch covers experienced a catastrophic failure caused by the intense pressure. The structural failure then created conditions allowing sudden and massive flooding of the cargo hold, as well as a significant list. Unfortunately, when bulk cargo was aboard the ship, like the taconite pellet she was hauling, this meant it was virtually impossible to pump water out if it flooded into the cargo hold. The hatch design of the Fitzgerald indicated that significant amounts of water would have entered the cargo hold during the storm. Another complicating factor is that the ship was not fitted with a system to allow it to detect flooding. The combined weight of the water in the ballast tanks, tunnel, cargo hold, and on deck would have brought the deck of the Fitzgerald perilously close to the waterline, allowing more water to enter the cargo hold. The severe weather meant it was unlikely that Captain McSorley realized the extent of the flooding on his ship. By the time the water level exceeded the height of the cargo, it was too late. The flooding happened so quickly that the ship sank before a distress call could be transmitted, with the Fitzgerald either plunging or partially capsizing and plunging under the surface of the lake. And as the cargo hold had no watertight bulkheads, water rapidly flooded the hold, causing the vessel to sink bow first to the bottom of the lake. And upon impact with the floor of Lake Superior, the midship portion of the ship came apart, and the stern section rolled over, coming to rest upside down. The financial loss to the Oglebay Norton Company was estimated at a staggering $24 million, the largest ever in the history of the Great Lakes. Devastated families of the crew filed civil suits against both the company and Northwestern Mutual who had built the Fitzgerald, and the families did end up receiving compensation. The investigation revealed numerous broader safety issues, and these had significant implications for ongoing shipping practices on the Great Lakes. While not directly related to the sinking, these recommendations included the need for additional instrumentation for vessels navigating restricted waterways. Cargo vessels on the Great Lakes were normally dry-docked once every five years. This made it unlikely that any resulting damage would be detected in a timely manner, possibly leading to major structural failure. The limitations of the wave height prediction techniques available to the National Weather Service in the mid-70s were clearly not adequate when it came to issuing forecasts for the Great Lakes. This is an understatement, but the wave prediction issued by the National Weather Service at 4:39 p.m. on November 10th was inaccurate. Waves were predicted to be 8 to 16 feet, but the Anderson observed waves of 18 to 25 feet and a couple of rogue waves that were above 30 feet. A recommendation is also made that Great Lakes bulk cargo vessels be prohibited from operating in weather that exceeded the design limits of their vessels. Emergency position indicating radio beacons are battery-operated radio transmitters designed to transmit an emergency signal. Unfortunately for the Fitzgerald, Great Lakes vessels were not required to have these on board at the time she perished. The Anderson lost visual and radar contact with Fitzgerald about 7.15. Because there was no opportunity for the Fitzgerald to issue a distress signal, it was more than an hour before the Anderson realized that the Fitzgerald was lost. Had an emergency beacon been fitted to the Fitzgerald, it would have activated immediately, alerting rescue units. It took this tragedy for authorities to fully recognize that the ability to locate distress signals would facilitate timely and precise search and rescue efforts, increasing the likelihood of finding survivors. It was also acknowledged that the Coast Guard's surface search and rescue capability was extremely limited at the time she was lost. The closest Coast Guard surface unit that had the capacity to operate in extreme weather was 300 miles away. When it did arrive, 17 hours after the Fitzgerald disappeared, the Naugatuck was restricted from operating in open waters when wind speeds exceeded 60 knots. There's no question that the U.S. and Canadian Coast Guards encountered several difficulties responding to the emergency from the outset and in coordinating immediate search and rescue efforts. Both agencies were later found to have conducted an extensive and thorough search, but this tragedy emphasized the need for additional, capable surface search and rescue units on the Great Lakes, especially during the fall months when extreme weather events are more frequent. Other recommendations included formal reporting on the number of hatch cover inspections made of Great Lakes bulk cargo vessels over the next two years, implementation of a design study to improve the design of weather-tight hatch covers, and the need for an onboard mechanism to detect water in the cargo holds of Great Lakes vessels, allowing crews to be alerted quickly and implement necessary corrective action. And despite the determinations made by the National Transportation Safety Bureau and the Coast Guard about the probable cause of the sinking, there remain several theories as to the exact cause, and sadly, none of these are 100% conclusive. The lack of survivors prevents us from having a definitive answer. One theory supported by the investigating maritime authorities is that the Fitzgerald flooded and sank due to structural failure of her hatch covers which caused the cargo hold to flood. Another theory is that the Fitzgerald was swamped by rogue waves, possibly the same waves that hit the Anderson around 7 p.m. before surging down the lake toward the Fitzgerald, causing her to break apart on the surface and sink. A third theory is that the Fitzgerald sank as a result of structural failure of the hull. This damage may have been sustained when the ship passed over the shallow waters of Six Fathom Shoal. If the Fitzgerald hit ground, the damage to the hull would have caused her to take on more water before sinking. In July 1995, the Edmund Fitzgerald's bell was recovered by a dive crew. The 200-pound bell was retrieved on humanitarian grounds, following an appeal for a symbolic memorial by the surviving families of the crew who had been lost. The recovery expedition was generously financed in part by the Native American Sioux Tribe of Chippewa who co-signed a loan for $250,000. With the original bell recovered, a new one was taken down to the ship, inscribed with the names of the 29 crew who lost their lives. The original bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald was painstakingly restored and is on display at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. In order to preserve and protect the site of the wreck, the Canadian government prohibited dive teams from having future access. Today, the wreckage of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the remains of her crew continue to rest undisturbed at the bottom of Lake Superior. Every year, the men who lost their lives are remembered in a memorial service on the anniversary of the sinking. In honor of their memory and service, the restored bell from the ship is rung just once on that date each year. We are all hopeful that there will never be another incident like the loss of the Fitzgerald. In August 1976, Canadian singer-songwriter-musician Gordon Lightfoot immortalized this tragedy in his haunting song entitled The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The song vividly describes the stormy weather common to the Great Lakes region in the fall, the evocative lyrics referring to the destructive gale-force winds as the Witch of November. This poignant dedication to both the memory of the crew who were lost and their families went on to be performed regularly at Lightfoot's concerts. Already Gone will return March 1st with a new episode, writing credit this week to Gemma Harris, audio production by Cesare Gray. For early and ad-free access to episodes, as well as bonus content, find us on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash alreadygone to learn more. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe.